0: Welcome everyone to a brand new episode of Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. This is your host, Mike Wong, and I'm super excited for you to hear a fascinating interview that I did with Nicole Wallach, where she helps me look at the first season of Star Trek Discovery from a film critic's perspective. Together, we'll unpack the lighting, cinematography, and costuming. Of the latest rendition of Star Trek. Now, there is a little background audio that I hope you don't find too distracting. I thought that doing the interview at a cafe with ambient noise would be cute, but in retrospect, I don't think it was necessarily the greatest idea. Still, listen to this interview all the way through, because Nicole's voice comes through loud and clear as she blows my mind over and over again. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, everybody. This is your host, Mike Wong, and today I'm sitting across from Nicole Wallach, who is a PhD student in planetary science at Caltech. And Nicole is also a really, really, really big film buff. Like to be. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And right now we are sitting at a tea shop that is sort of equidistant between the two places where we live I said let's go get boba because it's such a hot day and I was basically melting on my way here it feels like Venus outside (laughs) but um (laughs) but here we are and uh this is you know an experimental podcast because there's music playing in the background and there's other people having conversations so if you decide that you absolutely hate Mike going to cafes and talking to people (laughs) please tweet at me and let me know um, there's a chance that I will realize this as I'm editing the podcast anyway, <laughs> uh, in which case um, nothing will change because I'm still going to produce this podcast because Nicole <laughs> is going to say some really amazing things about Star Trek Discovery we'll here. See. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Nicole, I give you a brief introduction, but why don't you go ahead and give us a more thorough introduction of who you are and what you're about?
1: Yeah, so I'm a grad student at Caltech, just finishing up my second year. Uh, I work mostly on exoplanets, their atmospheres, characterizing them as a way of kind of looking at how planets form. So I kind of do that. I do a little bit of disc modeling and disc observations, just sort of discs surrounding stars to try to gauge again how planets form in the discs. So it's kind of what I work on, but as Mike alluded to, I am a self-proclaimed film buff. Uh, I see a lot of movies in a year, but I do have technical, I guess, qualifications, other than me just saying my opinions, but...
0: <laughs> what are those technical qualifications? <laughs> because some people might be wondering why I'm talking to an exoplanet scientist about cinematography.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Uh, so I actually majored in physics when I was an undergrad, but I also minored in film studies. So in addition to taking a lot of film studies classes, I wrote for our school paper, so I did film reviews and film critiques that way. I usually see on average in the movie theaters, aside from all film festivals and stuff, uh, usually between 70 and 100 movies in theaters, so that's like more the-
0: Per year.
1: Yeah, per calendar year. Wow. So that's like the informal part, but yeah, I do technically sort of have a degree almost in film studies, so.
0: That's uh, (laughs) really impressive, especially to me, because (laughs) I have never taken a single class or read a single book or anything to do with film studies. Uh. Yeah, so I'm sure there are going to be words and concepts (laughs) that you teach me today that I'm going to need to ask clarifying questions about. And I'm sure that I'm also going to ask some really stupid questions because I have no idea what we're about to talk about. No,
1: no, there are no stupid questions with film because, I mean, the reason I love film so much is that it's not only an art form in and of itself, but it's also a way of probing society. So there are no stupid questions in general about film because it's just a reflection of who we are as people. So I think it's important that we as a society kind of embrace our own film culture, so...
0: That's a really good perspective to have. I still think I'm probably going to ask at least one stupid question. There are um, (laughs) no stupid questions. Come on. Let me ask the question that I ask every guest that I bring on to Strange New Worlds, which is obviously this is a science and Star Trek podcast. So, Nicole, what's your history with Star Trek?
1: Yeah. So I actually only have sort of the book ending of Star Trek. So... When I was in high school, I went to like a math and science high school, so my entire high school was just crazy about the first Star Trek movie when it came out, the reboot, the J.J. Abrams movies, mm-hmm. which is absolutely crazy. So I ended up seeing that, I want to say, six or seven times in theaters with different people in high school. Ah, okay.
0: <laughs> this is probably the one movie that I've seen more times in theaters ah. than you. I saw it nine times in theaters. Ah, you win. <laughs> uh, see, I thought I was going to get on something more Star
1: Trek, but uh, yeah, I saw that movie a lot. Uh, it was just very popular. Star Wars and Star Trek did happen to be a big thing, unsurprisingly, in a math and science high school. So I saw that a bunch, and then I realized, oh, this is actually really cool. So I started watching the original series. I kind of went to the oldest and figured I'd work my way up. Never got that far, and just kept rewatching the original series. Uh-huh. So I've never actually watched anything other than the new movies, the original series, and now Star Trek Discovery. So, okay, there's a lot of middle missing for so me. There but. is a lot of
0: middle missing, but you know what? I feel like you actually don't miss anything that is crucial to understanding those three things that you're watching or that you've watched because the middle stuff just so happens to basically almost all of it takes place in the future compared to those things. (laughs) Of course. You know, so (laughs) it's like... The Star Wars line of, like, time (laughs) makes so much sense. Yeah, because Star Trek Discovery is a prequel to the original series and the reboots take place in the original series era, so... Yeah, you're basically very, uh, you're very consistent. <laughs>
1: <laughs> sure. <laughs> I think I just love the sort of 60s aesthetic, and that's kind of why I stuck with that. I, was like, I don't really need them to have good special effects. I want like the dude opening the door like with a pull string and making the slidey noise, and it's like kind of what I like. It's endearing, I think, is the thing about the original series. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So that's, I think, why I kept rewatching it. But yeah, totally, the timelines make sense when you think about it, I guess. <laughs> what I'm going to keep telling myself so I don't have to watch any of the middle stuff. <laughs> stick with what I like. Okay, okay.
0: So one of the biggest pieces of news, Star Trek news, to come out of Comic-Con, which was a couple weeks ago, was that Star Trek Discovery is not just going to be its regular seasonal stories made up of 45 minute or so episodes, but they're also going to do these things called short treks which are 15 minute episodes, which will air, I think, once a week in December, so there'll be four of them, leading up to the launch of season two in probably January 2019. And in these short tracks, they promise that we'll see both old characters from Star Trek Discovery and new ones, so I think there's going to be one about Harry Mudd, one about Tilly, one about Saru's backstory, and the fourth, I'm not quite sure what that's going to be about. But from a filmmaking perspective, What's the difference between trying to squeeze a story into 15 minutes versus deciding that you're going to tell some kind of story over a 45-minute arc?
1: Yeah, so that actually kind of goes back to the idea and the, the important difference between film and television, between a series that's meant to be broken up into episodes or uh, one continuous movie. So it's the same kind of idea. You have more time to play with. So with a 15-minute sort of short, self-contained story, you need to close up all your storylines. You can't kind of go about and have these side stories that don't really filter into the main story. So, just from a purely sort of story driven perspective, you need to be more on top of it. You can't allow sort of the, the silly jokes or the more visual gaffes usually. You need to be, if you're trying to tell a story, be very to the point. 45 minutes, in addition to being just a longer time, obviously, you also, when you have it in a series, you can kind of bridge over to the next episode if you're kind of the discovery way of doing it. So, if you have a serial versus an episodic uh, style of television, it allows you to either bridge the gap between episodes and keep telling the same story, or have discrete chunks. And that's kind of what you get with 15 minutes. If they're trying to do it in discrete chunks, you kind of have one-off episodes, kind of like the original series, actually, where there isn't any too overarching story like Mm -hmm. you see with Discovery. Mm -hmm. So I think it might be, it depends, we'll see, but a quasi-return to form in these sort of fun, monster of the week, story of the week kind of things.
0: That's really cool. And um, it'll be really fun to see Star Trek in such a short format. I think the shortest format Star Trek on screen has been the animated series. And I don't know how much of that you've watched. I haven't watched none. None. Yeah, i I've watched a few, a handful of episodes, but they're more like, oh, I'm trying to remember now, probably 20 minutes or half an hour. So a 15-minute episode of Star Trek is something that we have never seen before. So I'm looking forward to how they squeeze content into that short amount of time. Yeah,
1: I'd be curious to see if it's more, well, I guess we'll see, but more sort of comedic or more dramatic because you don't tend to see short-form dramas. So when you think about a a sitcom, they're usually 22 minutes and then commercials. So a 15-minute short story seems to fit in a lot more with that kind of comedic aspect versus a drama which tends to be hour-long, 48 minutes, 42 minutes. So I, I don't know if that's any indication about what the story is going to be, but it's going to be very interesting either way, depending on the, the format that they go. But
0: All right, so let's dive into Star Trek Discovery. Nicole, you just went to Europe, and I gave you a mission when I found <laughs> out that you were going to go to Europe for a couple of weeks. I said, you know what's cool about going to Europe besides Europe? <laughs> it's that when you go to Europe, or actually anywhere else basically in the world, besides the United States of America, you get to watch Star Trek Discovery on Netflix. So we poor Americans have to subscribe (laughs) to this crazy thing called CBS All Access, which by the way, I've done, yes, I paid that money. (laughs) Didn't wait to go to Europe. uh... (laughs) No. (laughs) But while you were in Europe, I said, why don't you give Star Trek Discovery a go? And indeed you did. But first of all, what were you doing in Europe?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so I guess I'm foremost a grad student in planetary science. So kind of the big thing with grad students in general is presenting your work at the end of every year or kind of whenever there are major conferences. So I went to Madrid first for a week-long conference, more of a workshop, to try to understand why we don't detect young planets forming in disks. We don't have a lot of detections of young planets. I mean, the directly imaged planets that we find, when you can literally take a picture basically of a planet forming around its host star, are only about a dozen or so as opposed to the thousands of planets that Kepler has found through a different detection method, the transit method, when the planet passes in front of its host star and blocks a portion of the host star's light out. That's a much easier detection method for large numbers of planets. So those planets tend to be a lot older, though. It's a lot easier to directly detect young planets because they're self-luminous, basically they still burn really bright with their own heat of formation. So it's easy to detect young planets that way, but that's pretty much the only way that's specifically targeting young planets. And young planets, once again, kind of allow us to see how these planets are forming and see how our own solar system formed. That's what I was doing in Madrid was basically learning about why we can't find these planets and why it's so hard through directly imaged planets mostly, but also through other detection methods. So it all kind of goes back to planet formation.
0: Wow, that's far out stuff. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Literally. Actually,
1: these planets are pretty close usually. They're actually the closer planets that we can detect normally.
0: Okay, right, because then it would be easier to find them. Yes, yeah. brighter to us.
1: Yes, they're brighter to us. They're also closer to us, which means that we can basically see them better. We have better angular resolution on the sky.
0: That makes sense. Okay, well, while you weren't talking about awesome exoplanetary (laughs) science in Europe, you were watching Star Trek Discovery, and the moment you got back to Pasadena, you popped into my office and you exclaimed, Star Trek Discovery was not what (laughs) I thought it would be. So, what did you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so I actually watched all of Star Trek Discovery the week after the workshop in Madrid. I was in Cambridge for a conference, and after every day of sort of these long blocks of talks, hours and hours of talks, I would sit in my hotel room and just watch an episode or two of Star Trek Discovery. And I was thinking, oh, this will be like a really relaxing, lighthearted, jaunt through the universe. It'll be the best (laughs) way to, to relax after these long series of talks. And then... She gets
0: court-martialed.
1: And I'm like, what? What, Michael?
0: Yeah. Sardar so Discovery was so stressful. <laughs> and my goodness, yeah. Watching it week by week, going through the stress of having a cliffhanger ending every single episode, and then having to wait seven days before we get to see <laughs> what happens next... I mean, that's one experience, but then you just getting to blitz through it all at once. Like, I actually don't know what it feels like to do that with Star Trek Discovery. So how did, <laughs> how did you feel watching them all back to back to back? Emotionally drained
1: <laughs> was, was the thing. I can only watch about two episodes, both because of like, timing, and. but mostly it's just, this is so stressful. It's very hard to be that engaged when you're watching. I mean, you have dramas that people watch and sort of... Watch one after the other, after the other, and it's very common to sort of binge things on Netflix these days. But those shows, the ones that I binge, are tend like it's like Scrubs or like How I Met Your Mother, something that's very happy. And it's just it's uncharacteristically emotionally draining. I think Star Trek Discovery. Yeah. But definitely engaging. It definitely made me want to watch every episode. But yeah, it was it was hard. <laughs>
0: Okay, so something else that you mentioned to me was that you could see influences from the reboot Star Trek movies in Star Trek Discovery. Now from a production point of view I think we should definitely point out that there are two different entities making these things, two different corporate entities. Mm -hmm. For some reason the rights to Star Trek for TV and for movies are split between two different companies, CBS for Star Trek on TV and paramount for Star Trek on the silver screen. So maybe it's not surprising that one has influenced the other because they're both Star Trek and they've both happened around the same time, but it is a little bit interesting because it's not like the same people making them completely. So how did you see this uh, influence? And and give me a few examples.
1: So I think the most obvious one that everyone who's familiar with J.J. Abrams knows, lens flares. The big thing about the new movies, and he gets made fun of about this quite often, is that he loves lens flares. So that kind of brought forth into the discovery as well. You have all these lens flares. But I think that the biggest thing that you can see is the tonal shift. So like I mentioned before, film is just basically a mirror to the society in which it's being created basically. So society is going to be mirrored in anything that we make. Art is just a product of its surroundings basically, and film is no exception, whether it's television or movies or whatever. So we see this big sort of tonal shift, at least for me, from the original series to Discovery and to the new movies, it's much darker, both in terms of the actual lighting and in terms of the story. So if you look at the way that Star Trek Discovery and all of the new movies are filmed, you have this big contrast between light and dark, you have a lot of shadowing. Mm. And that's very prominent in the movies and it's also very, very prominent in the television show. And lighting has a very important role in tone. So for example, lighting when you have stark contrasts in color is usually indicative of some sort of schism in society. Some light versus dark, good versus bad. But it's not black and white, that's the whole idea. You have the shadowing, so nothing is clear. Which I think is prominent in our society today. You have a lot of issues that are sort of in that gray area. A lot of combative forces that don't seem to want to agree even though they're sort of arguing for the same things. So that sort of lighting is indicative of that tone for starters, if that makes sense.
0: That does make sense. And now that you mention it, yeah, there is a lot of dramatic lighting Mm -hmm. in Star Trek Discovery. And actually, light is not just a theme in terms of the actual lighting of the set, but also in one of the characters... Lorca is very sensitive to light.
1: Exactly. It turns out to be
0: from the mirror universe where the light is different or that all the humans are very sensitive to light and need darker surroundings which is sort of reflective of mirror universe humans being evil. Exactly. Wow, you're making me draw connections in (laughs) my head. This is so great. Um, And and so another um, thing that I'm drawing a connection to right now (laughs) is between lighting and the physical eyeball exactly which is uh something that i've noticed while i was watching star trek discovery was that there were a lot of close-ups of eyeballs <laughs> yes and so what do you make of that
1: <laughs> so uh, there's two different things there so one you alluded to before with lorca and actually I'll, I'll note that the first time you see lorca he's in entire darkness that is such an sort of obvious foreshadowing when you're introduced to a character in total darkness, you should always be wary of their motives. Almost always. So lighting is very key. I have to
0: ask now, yeah. were you like on Lorca's case from the initial <laughs> introduction of Lorca because of this? Because I don't have that perspective of associating lighting with a character's motives. I just am not in <laughs> tune with that. So I was like kind of on board with this Lorca dude for a long time. And then I started suspecting, okay, there's something a little bit off about him. Maybe he's from some kind of other universe. But were you just like, okay, this guy is going to be <laughs> bad? <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, there were a couple of indications of that. First, literally his very first introduction, total darkness. And when he, later on when he explains the mycelial network to Michael, she's in the sort of chamber, right? And the spores are all around her. So she has to look through the spores to see him. Whenever you have to look through something else to see another character usually it's another indication of you're not seeing their entire person and you're not seeing all their motives. So she's literally, if you see the the way it's set up, she's being blinded to Lorca by this mycelial network. So he is distracting her, if you think about it, sort of the, the long game that he's playing, is that his immediate thing is, yeah, the mycelial network will help us get around, it'll help us win the war, and he says, get back home. That obviously has a lot more depth to it when you realize his home is not our home and his home is not our universe's home. So it's another thing. It's she is being blinded to his true motives by what he's putting in front of her. So between those two things, I was like kind of not fully invested in Lorca as a good guy. Huh. He also is kind of a warmonger, but besides that.
0: Right. You're blowing my mind right now that, <laughs> that there's that there were actually hints in the yeah. way that certain scenes were set up in the in the physical relationships between where characters stood to each other and what was in between them that could have alerted me to realities that I only later found out when it was spelled out to me in (laughs) greater detail.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there's a couple of things like that. I think that cinematography and shadowing and all of these different things that play into the visual aspects of film tell an entirely different story a lot of times than the story that's actually being told. And it's usually a few steps ahead, because then you can think, oh, wait, if I had realized that earlier, and then your mind is just kind of blown. You're like, it's been there the entire time. (laughs) Uh, There's also another thing that's kind of similar to that. In the first two episodes, actually, if you notice, a lot of the camera angles are kind of jarring. Uh They're not fully sort of straight. So if you think about the scene where Philippa and Michael are on the Klingon, the main Klingon vessel, First of all, camera angles are crooked a lot of times, but you're also seeing through a lot of debris. So it's another indication that you're not seeing the full picture and something is going to be happening, and that's obviously when the whole thing happens with Philippa. there. I assume everyone has actually watched Star Trek Discovery. Yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> spoilers. Feel free to spoil everything. Okay. Yeah. So I figured
1: I was the last person to actually watch the show. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so when she dies and things like that, you kind of realize that, oh, you weren't seeing the full picture. You figured it's a simple hostage kind of situation but something else is gonna go on and that's from the jarring camera angles and from seeing through debris and things like that you can kind of get an indication that you're not seeing the full picture and something is wrong their mission is not going to be the way it should because it's not going to go the way they expect it to because the camera is not the way you expect it to be
0: Wow okay I am going to totally (laughs) be on the lookout for tilted camera angles because uh, the moment that happens I'm just gonna be like something's wrong, something's gonna go bad. <laughs> yeah,
1: usually it's, it's that or sometimes it's just they're out of sorts too. So they're obviously in a new place, so they're in a place that's hostile to them. So they must be very on edge and jarring camera angles make you on edge as well. So it's that combination of sort of a feeling of unease, but also something bad's gonna happen usually when shows are like, you should be uneasy, be prepared kind of thing. So
0: that's usually what sort of these jarring camera angles mean. All right, so we took a very long detour, but I want to bring (laughs) us back to eyeballs. Because eyeballs are very interesting to me in that we saw them so close up, saw things reflected in them. There Mm -hmm. was even one scene transition where we went through an eyeball. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what's up with eyeballs? Yeah,
1: so there's a couple, once again, a couple of different things, I guess, going back to that, that eyeballs can mean. And this is all kind of metaphorical, so it's kind of whatever the cinematographer and director want them to be. But sometimes, eyeballs, I mean, windows to the soul kind of thing. It also goes back to the idea that the sort of alternate universe people, something is wrong with their souls because something is wrong with their eyes.
0: Whoa.
1: Uh, going back into the light and the dark. But you usually, and that's the one thing, is that usually you can kind of see a person's motives by their, where they're looking, their eyeline, what's reflected in their eyes. So the first time also you see Lorca, you see the sky reflected in his eyes. Because he can't see things very well, but you see the stars. Hmm. So that can mean a lot of different things. I mean, to the sort of first pass, it's, oh, look how much he loves the stars. That's what he really believes in. But moreover, he needs to go through all these stars and through a different universe to get back to where he belongs. So that's kind of the one thing about eyeballs. Another thing is that pupils are very dark. People love to do the darkness of the pupils contrasted with the darkness, or actually similar to the darkness of space. So that's a really big thing, too, is that sort of in a lot of sci-fi shows and a lot of sci-fi films, you'll see this sort of very clear similarity between the individual feeling isolated in space because their eyes mimic the vastness of space. You'll also see on the sort of the main Klingon vessel in the very beginning, the major window that you see is almost shaped like an eyeball. It's a big circular window inset in a bunch of smaller windows around it. So that's another idea that you have this sort of almost weird juxtaposition, but not really, of the of Katoop. Uh, What's his name? Sorry, Takuvma. Takuvma. Sorry, my uh, my Klingon's not the best, obviously. <laughs> I did try to watch with subtitles. Could not pick up enough Klingon. The Klingon subtitles yeah. on Netflix. <laughs> yeah. Wow, what a great Easter egg, huh? So good, so good. I I tried to learn Klingon. I just I really speak English half the time. So, uh, but Takuvma when he's in profile against that window, it's another idea. You kind of have this mimicking of eye-like features and space, and it kind of all ties back to that.
0: Wow. I will never see eyeballs (laughs) the same way again! This is so great! Okay. Eyeballs also appear in the opening title sequence of Star Trek Discovery, which I absolutely love. I thought there were a lot of cool Easter eggs in there in terms of foreshadowing things that we would later see or things that would be important later on in the series. And so I was just wondering what your take is on the opening title sequence of Star Trek Discovery, which is very different from opening title sequences from previous incarnations of Star Trek. Yeah,
1: title sequences are one of those things that, are, that tend to be underappreciated in television shows, especially Netflix, when I could skip the intro, which I did do quite frequently, in full disclosure. Uh, but title sequences can mean a lot. It can be a lot of foreshadowing, like you said, but it's also a lot about tone. So think about Game of Thrones, for example. Actually, the title sequence of Discovery kind of struck me very similarly as here's a bunch of little snippets of things that are kind of going to be important that you'll realize later, but which just kind of seem abstract when you see them sort of one after the other. But yeah, absolutely. It's a lot less sort of great expanse like you see in the Star Trek, normal Star Trek TV shows and movies, that title sequences of those. But it's a lot more sort of this is what's going to happen and a lot less let's dream, for lack of a better word. It's a lot more rooted in... A weird kind of reality, if that makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Different, I think, is the major thing, Is that, and purposefully so. The tone of the show is very different than what we've seen with a lot of Star Trek, and they knew that, and the title sequence kind of warned you about that at the beginning.
0: So Star Trek Discovery has been nominated for a couple of different awards for television, and one of those is for the costuming department, and I think it's Gersha Phillips is her name, who is the lead costume designer for Star Trek Discovery. I happen to really love all of the designs, especially the Mirror Universe costumes (laughs) that they got to wear. Um, What what, what did you notice from a film critic's point of view (laughs) about the different uniforms that were presented in Star Trek Discovery?
1: yeah, so I think that there's a really underappreciated aspect of film in general, which is costuming. That's super underappreciated. People think, "Oh, we're just going to throw on you know, normal clothes, i wear jeans and a t-shirt, it'll be fine, it's whatever. But people spend a lot of time, costume designers spend a lot of time trying to understand what the tone of the show should be and kind of mirror that in the costuming. It's similar to lighting. It seems like a sort of secondary, no one really cares about it kind of idea but it sets this sort of subliminal tone. So even if it's not at the forefront of your mind, things that you see are going to influence how you react to the show. So keeping that in mind, the really dark subdued colors of the Discovery uniforms are in such stark contrast with what we see normally from the Star Trek universe. Mostly these bright colored sort of weirdly garish costumes. I mean, red shirts, you need to have a red shirt to have a red shirt, but we don't see that. We don't see these sort of ridiculous off the wall colors. And that is very purposeful, obviously, because we have this, once again, dark sort of undertone to this entire show. Like I said, it's very different than what I expected. It's not a happy, sort of gallivanting show. It's very serious that tackles some sort of serious morality issues, which not to say that the original Star Trek or other movies don't. It's just a bigger part of what they're doing is the internal struggle. I mean, you have mirror versions of themselves. That's an obvious sort of internal struggle that you have. Whenever you have a mirror version of a person, you're going to have... A different part of you. You're going to be a foil to yourself, basically. And those sort of really dark themes are presented in the costumes. So you have these very metallic colors, which is very uncharacteristic of Star Trek. You can't, I I couldn't at least from the onset, tell who was what kind of officer, who was in
0: what department. Right, you really had to look very closely. Yeah,
1: yeah. And at one point they say, what are all these silver shirts doing? This must be a science vessel. It's like, oh, I guess silver is blue in this world then. (laughs) Okay. Um, But that's very purposeful. It's very dark. It's very subdued. It's less happy. And the thing that I'll point out is that you see in the trailer, which I know you you and Peter talked about at some point very recently, the Mm -hmm. trailer that came out of Comic-Con, Pike is wearing yellow.
0: Yeah. He's wearing
1: a very vibrant, bright color, which is very characteristic of Star Trek, and it's what we'd expect. So there's a couple of different things that that could even indicate from a wardrobe perspective, and once again, kind of wardrobe mimicking tone, is that we could be seeing an entirely different discovery next year. We could be seeing a much happier discovery, for example, or we could be seeing a discovery where Pike is sort of his classic self that we got used to seeing from the original series and things like that, and is a lot less constricted by what Discovery has gone through, contrasting with Discovery's personnel and all the hardships that they had to specifically Michael and all the hardship that she's had to struggle with as she was just doing what she thought was best. So there's a lot to sort of unpack um, (laughs) with wardrobe
0: I think in this respect. That's that's amazing yeah you're really unzipping this suitcase of wardrobe (laughs) implications that never occurred to me. (laughs) Again you're blowing my mind here because I don't see things from a film critic's point of view, I see things from a Star Trek fan point of view. Yeah. And to me, these dark navy blue uniforms are very reminiscent of Star Trek Enterprise. Right. And so there was sort of this like evolution in my mind between the navy blue jumpsuits of Enterprise, going to Discovery, and then eventually ending up with the very bright yellow, red, and blue from the original series. So I thought that it was just, oh, it's a nice nod to Enterprise. <laughs> but no, it's really reflective of, as you say, the underlying tones of what Star Trek Discovery is all about, that internal struggle. And, and, and what an amazing internal struggle we got to see between Tyler and Voke, who were basically yeah. combined into one being. Yes. To fight within oneself <laughs> these two personas.
1: Yeah, that actually, the introduction of Tyler also similarly shows something going on with him. So when you first see him, he's laying on the floor of the cage, and Gabriel basically trips over him almost. He doesn't see him. He doesn't see him for who he truly is. There's a lot going on also with with, uh, color. Wow. (laughs) Wow.
0: Okay, wait. So you were (laughs) keyed in to Tyler not actually being Tyler. From the very moment we saw Tyler because Gabriel Lorca trips over him and doesn't see him who he <laughs> Because you know what? That one, that like revelation where we find out that Tyler is really Vogue and Voke has been hidden in Tyler, that was just like completely mind-blowing to me. Yeah. And I needed a few episodes <laughs> to like actually latch on this yeah. and convince myself, but... You just knew.
1: I mean, I don't think I would say I knew that he was secretly a Klingon, because I don't <laughs> think anyone would know that. But you can kind of get in the idea that there's something going on beneath the surface. So also in that scene in the cage, or in that prison cell, you see Lorca and you see Tyler in shadow most of the time. But interestingly enough, you see Mud in light. There's a one particular shot where he's sort of in the forefront of these barred windows. But you see the light coming through. So Mud, he's always a decently transparent, you know there's something going on with him that like, you never really trust him, you never do, you know that there's something going on with him, but his motives are clear. Uh-huh. So you have this very clear lighting, motives are very obvious, he's in it for himself, he doesn't really care. Even when it's like, oh, you were, when Gabriel's talking about how he betrayed them, like everybody kind of saw that coming. There was no way that wasn't what was happening. Also from knowing Mudd from the Star Trek universe in general, always in it for himself but Tyler and Gabriel tend to be in sort of shadow a lot of times in that scene, which is one of those, another indication again of just something beneath the surface, something that you don't clearly see. When someone doesn't see a character, there's something going on there that you don't see. And that's shadow hides a person. Being on the floor hides the person as well. So whenever you don't see a character entirely, it's usually indicative of not seeing the full picture and not seeing something that's right
0: beneath their surface. But no, did not know he was a Klingon. (laughs) No way. (laughs) All right. So if you could pick just one favorite moment from a cinematography point of view from the first season of Star Trek Discovery, what would that moment be? (sighs)
1: See, I think you want me to say one of those space battles, but I'm not going to.
0: (laughs) I I don't have any investment in space battles. Really? I mean, I love space battles. Okay, (laughs) don't get me wrong. But (laughs) But
1: like anything. Yeah. So I think one of the most interesting things from a sort of almost sociological perspective is actually in the first couple episodes. I think all that setup is very important as foreshadowing. So the very first or second time you see all the Klingons and all the different houses of the Klingons projected in front of Takuvma and he's talking about how we need to unite and sort of bring back the Klingon empire and stuff like that. There's a very interesting thing where the camera is basically in a specific angle to make either the Klingon house leaders or Tekuvma look smaller, or big. So camera placement and angles is another way of indicating sort of superiority or subjugation, basically. So making a character look bigger than they are, more grand than they are. So you have a lot of these camera angles which look up at the sort of holograms of the Klingon house leaders and makes them look very big. And that's almost always sort of in the background of a shot where Tekuvma looks very small. So it's one of those things where you know Takuma's at the mercy or should be at the mercy of these sort of house leaders. But that sort of contrast, when you see Giorgio's hologram, it's at a very straight angle and it's almost a lot less trying to make it look bigger or smaller. It's a lot more, this is the way it is, this is who she is, she's a lot more sort of forthcoming and it's a lot less of a power dynamic, or it should be at least, and that's kind of the way the shots are set up. And I think that those sorts of very thoughtful camera shots are some of my favorite shots in general. It shows a lot of, first of all, it's a lot of effort to put cameras in very specific places to get very specific shots, specifically like low angle shots to make people look bigger is non-trivial a lot of times, to try to get the right focus and things like that. So I always love those kinds of shots because they're very thoughtful. It's obvious that, you know, Takuma wants the validation of these people that are much bigger in his mind. And important, even though he wants to go against them, he sees what he sees. But I think that's probably one of my favorite shots. It's a very important sort of setup shot to what's gonna happen later.
0: Wow. I would have never caught any of that. That's. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't even know what to say in response. Because <laughs> that is not at all what <laughs> I would have expected your favorite shot to well, be. It's but, it's, but it makes sense. You explained it very well. And I really think that I'm, I'm gonna look out for more of these shots and think more deeply about the person who is filming what is happening and why they're doing it in that way. Because that can give you so many different insights into the story that is being told.
1: Yeah, it's like a whole other story almost sometimes. Like, depending on what I'm trying to get out of a movie, I'll see a movie or a television show or whatever sort of multiple times with different emphasis. So if I want to see a movie or a TV show just to kind of turn my mind off and see something that's fun, you know, I'll watch it for what it is. But generally I also then, if I really like it, like to go back and watch very specifically sort of for camera angles and color contrast and lighting and wardrobe because it's such an important undertone to making film and it's what makes film and TV shows different than any other static form of art.
0: That's really great. Thank you so much for coming on board Strange New Worlds and broadening my perspective on not just Star Trek Discovery but the film industry and process of creating television. It was just amazing to, to speak to you about this. Now, let's tie this up by talking about science again. So, did you see anything related to your own research? while you were watching Star Trek Discovery? Or was it just all admiring the wardrobe (laughs) and the camera angles and the amazing lighting?
1: Yeah, so a lot of that was that. A lot of my enjoyment of the show was it's sci-fi and it doesn't most of the time pretend to be science. So I think, at least to me, it's very easy to turn off that science part of my brain because sci-fi doesn't most of the time try to be real. It's when science fiction sort of thinks it's plausible but gets very easy things wrong that it bothers me. But most of it was just, hey, look, you know, this camera angle or this amazing part of the storyline or something like that. But, I mean, I think the sort of overarching theme in general is that look at all of this life and look at all these different kinds of planets that are in the universe of Star Trek. And that kind of just brings it back home for me that what I'm studying is how planets form and how they evolve. And just for me, I think it's sort of one of those things that just reminds me how much I love what I do.
0: That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, when you can watch a piece of fiction and it really hits home with reality and being like, wow, that makes me feel good about my own life. That's great. Thanks to you, now I feel like I need to go back and rewatch Star Trek Discovery, but pay attention to all of these different ideas that you've brought forth into my mind, my consciousness. (laughs) I really think that I will enjoy season two a lot more thanks to this discussion.
1: Anything I can do to heighten your love of Star Trek is amazing to me, so I'll take that as a point of personal pride.
0: (laughs) All right. That concludes episode 42 of Strange New Worlds. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nicole Wallach analyzing the style and creation of Star Trek Discovery. It's clear that so much thought went into every little detail of this show, And I love that there are so many layers to peel back and think about. Talking to Nicole has made me appreciate how many people and how many decisions are required to take printed word and transform that into a cinematic experience. It's not just the writers and actors, it's the concept artists, the set builders, the prop masters, the creature creators, the lighting designers, the cinematographers, the costume gurus, and many, many more. Every one of them has a say in what we finally experience on the screen. Every one of their decisions means something in the greater context of the show. May the dedication behind Star Trek's amazing storytelling live long and prosper. Until next time, see you out there.
1: to use any technical. There's a lot of technical words with film, like the contrast between light and dark is called charoscura. Wait, wait, wait,
0: wait, wait, what?
1: So there's a word for the contrast between light and dark, the shadowing. It's charoscura.
0: Charoscura. Yeah, it's... How do you spell that? That's a good question.
1: (laughs) It's like C-H-A-R is a lot of letters. Um, It's also pronounced in a bunch of different ways, depending on the way you feel it. But it's basically that contrast between light and dark.
0: C-H-I-A-R-O S-C-U-R-O. You know, uh, yeah, I'm going to be super fancy. The next time I'm watching Star Trek Discovery with friends, I'm just going to be like, see that Cheroscura right there? (laughs) You know, I'm picking up some vibes from this (laughs) Cheroscura. I think something bad is going to happen because that person's in that Cheroscura. I'm not using that word right, am I? (laughs) No, but you try. That's the important part.